I know that it is Christmas week, and for Bethany and I, we were talking about it the, uh, the other day. Uh, this has been the most odd Christmas season for us because we got into our house the day before Thanksgiving. We've got boxes everywhere, and then we've both had these medical health things pop up. So we're just grateful that we have a tree up, half the lights work, half the lights don't. And there is a nativity scene somewhere in the house. So we tried to do this week as we, we said, let's, we'll watch, let's at least watch a Christmas movie. Now, I know this is going to date us a little bit, but for us, watching a Christmas movie means we watched uh, Home Alone. And all this to say is I saw a meme last night that has three pictures of Kevin McAllister from Home Alone. And this is what it said. It said, at eight years old, Kevin McAllister was left home alone for three days, and he still made it to church. So yes, you can make it to church too. So all that to say is it has nothing to do with the sermon this morning other than saying, church family, it's just really good to see you this morning, and I'm glad you've made it to church. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn and open to Philippians chapter 2, the book of Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to pick up where we've been walking through uh, there in Philippians. If, if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, we, we took some time and we walked back through in chapter 2 looking at this picture of Christ who uh, is fully God and in humility steps down out of glory, does not hold his godhood as something to be lorded over us for his own advantage, but takes on flesh, becomes fully human, and in taking on flesh, takes on the form and the likeness of a servant, of a slave, and, and humbles himself by becoming obedient to death, and not just death, but death on a cross. And so for this reason, because he is risen, God has, has rightfully displayed upon him and shown that Jesus is God and exalted him and given him the name Lord, the name that is above every name, at which every knee will bow and tongue will confess. Not that everyone will believe, but there will come this moment where both those of us who believe and those who've rejected, we will all recognize Christ as Lord. And it's, it's part of this example as Paul is driving at this point that was back in, in chapter 1, verse 27, that you and I, as members of the body of Christ, are called to live out our heavenly citizenship worthy of the gospel. Our citizenship is not tied to our geopolitical nation. Our citizenship, if we are in Christ, is first and foremost a citizenship of the new heaven and the new earth. And there are rights and responsibilities that come with that, and Paul is still fleshing that out to the church in Philippi. He's called them to be completely and totally unified on mission for the Lord. He's called them to, to walk in unity with one another through humility. And now then, after giving the example of Christ, here's what he says. Look with me, Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Church family, let's, let's pray before we move further. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here gathered to worship you this morning. Um, Lord, and thank you for your word. And as we walk through your word this morning, Lord, may we not walk away with what we think it means. God, may we clearly understand what you are saying 
and how it applies into every nook and cranny of our lives. And Lord, for those of us who need to be encouraged, may we hear your word encourage us this morning. For those of us who, who need conviction, Lord, may we not only hear your conviction, but may we receive it and respond to it. Holy Spirit, you know where we're at. May we be faithful to respond to you. Jesus, may you be high, high, high and lifted up. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, church, look what he says. He says, so then, my beloved, in light of this call to live out your citizenship, in light of this call to be on mission singularly for the gospel, in light of the call to be unified through humility, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, my beloved, this word, my, the ones who are agape, the divine word for love, he writes to them, and there, is, and there is this relationship between Paul and the church where he draws them back as we come to this hard command, my beloved, those whom I love. The only reason Paul can say those whom I love is because these are not just Paul's beloved, but as saints in Christ Jesus, we already know they are God's beloved. That is the objects and recipients of God's divine Love, his agape love, his love which is not based on the worthiness or performance of the person, but on his very goodness and valuing of who they are. So then, my beloved, and, and I say this to say, church family, as we walk through this passage this morning, understand this passage ought to step on every one of our toes. I think if any of us can walk out this morning unscathed by this passage, uh, then maybe you're an angel in disguise. I don't know. But also understand this. The heart behind the passage this morning is not one of the caricature of the fire and brimstone legalistic Puritan preacher. It's one of deep, concerned, Christ-like love for the body of Christ. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's what Paul is saying. He's already given them a list of things, a list of ways in which they are to walk. And he says, church in Philippi, just, just, as, just as when I was present with you, just as those moments back in Acts 16, when, when I was there with you and I watched you respond in obedience in faith to the gospel, and I watched you begin to come together and, and walk as a church, and I watched you go out and preach the gospel and watched you faithfully suffer just as you walked in faithful obedience while I was present. So now in my absence, remain just as obedient. It says, church in Philippi, says, I'm calling you to obey regardless of what community or what presence is around you because your obedience is not to be tied to who is watching or who is present, but to the fact that you belong to Christ. So now much more in my absence, and here's what he says, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. The word work out means to, to work something out to completion. It, it's the visual picture of taking a complicated math problem and, and working all the way through it, working out that problem to its logical and rightful end, to its right application. 
And, and work out there really, it, it's, it's, it's meant to be carried out habitually, moment by moment, day by day, minute by minute. It is a present tense verb, meaning habitually. It should always be, says church in Philippi, always be working out. Always be working out. And it's, in, in, in its voice, it's, it's in such a way that it's, you yourselves must work this out. No one can work this out for you. No one can work out the salvation in you for you. You must work it out. And it's not a suggestion here. It is a command. Now, you may ask for a second. You may say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought salvation was on grace, not by works of righteousness. And if you are saying that, you are correct. Well done. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you are saved through faith. This not of yourselves, not by works of righteousness, lest any man should boast. I want to be clear this morning. Salvation, that is you and I, as image bearers of God, men and women, born in the image of God, but, but broken and, and, and born in, in by nature sinners outside of relationship with God, salvation is that work that Jesus Christ humbled himself and came and on that cross became our sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that, that work of salvation which does not just forgive us of our sins and the, the punishment of our sins, but it reconciles us and restores us back in relationship with God. This work of salvation is not conditioned on anyone's work. It is a work of Christ. You and I don't receive it because we go to church. You and I don't receive it because our family we were born into are, are Christians. Uh, you and I only receive this salvation when in conviction of our sin at a specific point in our life, we hear the gospel message, and in response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we trust who Jesus is, what he's done. We submit and say, yes, you are Lord, save me. That salvation is by grace. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. We cannot earn it. We can't ever earn it. Not only does that salvation come into our life by grace, but that salvation stays in our life by God's grace. So our works, we don't work to earn salvation. We also don't work to maintain our salvation, both of which... Many of us might be able to say theologically, yep, we know that's not true, but practically that means me living out my salvation is not to keep my relationship with Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is never a moment for you or for me where that salvation is ever in question based on our performance. Otherwise, it would not be by grace. And once we are in Christ, Christ says, those whom the Father has given to me, none which would include ourselves, are able to snatch them from my hand. It cannot be lost. So what do we mean by work out our salvation? We're not talking about earning something. We're not talking about maintaining something. What we are saying is that in that salvation, you and I have been given something. We have been transformed. There is a work that Paul references in, in chapter 1, verse 6, that God began a work in us, and he will bring that work to completion. That work of salvation exists in our life. Working it out means that we actually live out what it is. But we do so from a position 
of sons and daughters loved unconditionally by the Lord, whose salvation is by grace, who are not trying to earn His favor or earn His presence or earn anything. We can't earn anything. Jesus already earned it on our behalf. What we're doing is actually living out what He's done. This is what it means to work out your salvation, carry it out to the logical end. It means we believe and know what our rights in Christ are, and we faithfully live out our responsibilities in Christ. Because salvation is not simply a get-out-of-jail-free card from which we go, woo, good, don't have to worry about eternal hell. Absolutely, salvation saves us from that. But salvation bids you and I come and die. Come and die to ourselves, die to our flesh, die to our agenda, die to ourselves because Christ is life and we recognize that we need to be reconciled to God. And now our life is hid with Christ on high. Work out your salvation, but not just work out your salvation. Notice how he says it there, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, that word fear does mean terror, but it also means awe, wonder. It means a, a weight in the presence of glory. Trembling literally means to quiver, to quake. The idea of fear and trembling picks up on, on Old Testament language, this idea that in the presence of God, the one who is powerful, the one who is almighty, the one who is majestic, the one who is beautiful, the one who is holy, 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 radiating in perfect glory, that you and I are but creatures in the presence of the holy God, and there is to be an awe, a wonder, a respect a submission, a recognizing of the weight of glory of who He is. This is fear and trembling. It's not a, it's not a panicked fear, terror, which is driven by punishment or the thought of, oh, no, what if I mess up? Will, will God, the cosmic cop, come down on me? This, it's, not, it's not a kind of fear and, and, and wonder and concern like so many of the ancient people walked with their pagan gods. It's not that why. Because perfect love casts out that fear. Amen. And if you and I are in Christ, we have received perfect love. There is no longer fear of punishment, fear of rejection, fear of all of a sudden this, this mad, angry, stirring, lightning crazed God coming down and trying to. That's not what the fear is here. It is a serious awe and respect for who He is is. And who is He? Who is Christ? Who is God? He is holy, holy, holy. He is almighty. He is righteous. He is the judge. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is faithful to every word He speaks and every promise He makes. He is forgiving. He is humble. He is the almighty sovereign King and church family. He is God, and God takes being God seriously. So to fear Him is to be aware and see the reality of who He is, and not just who He is, but what He's done, what He has done in securing 
Salvation for you and I, what he has done in the gospel message, as, as, as one once put it, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Amen. You see, there is a weight to who he is, which naturally comes out in the work that he has done, which means that our fear and trembling of him is not driven by a fear of punishment. And what if I mess up? It is not driven by a tear, but it is driven, in fact, by love. Listen to what Deuteronomy 10 says, And now, O Israel, what does your Lord God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? And listen how this is, play, this is applied. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him with all your heart and soul, with all your being. It's a fear driven by love for who God is. It's a fear driven by awe and wonder and respect for his holiness, his majesty, his beauty. And this is something we miss oftentimes when we talk about holiness. Is God, is God absolutely majestic such that he tells Moses, if any man were to see my glory, they would not be able to live? Absolutely. But here's something interesting. There's something captivating and brilliant and beautiful about his glory. Amen. In fact, if you go through Scripture and you look at those those individuals in Scripture who dare walk with God in fear and trembling and whom God brings into great places of intimacy. You know what you notice about those individuals? Far from being terrified by God, they want more of Him, which is why Moses says after 40 days and nights on the mountain communing with God, what is his request? Lord, I ask but one thing, show me your glory. Even the disciples, though they don't get it, and they are petrified when they see Jesus transfigured on the mountain afterwards, they want more. Which means the more that we meditate on who God is, the more that we process the greatness of the God who would humble himself, who would not take his deity as a thing to be lorded over us, the more we process that, the more as we meditate on those truths of who he is, the more we are driven by awe and wonder and love and respect for who he is. Fear and trembling. But fear and trembling also brings other imagery. We're just coming off this passage looking at the humility of Christ. Fear and trembling, what is that? It's language not just of awe, wonder, respect, and love, but it's language of humility. It's a posture of humility. It's a posture that recognizes God, you're God, and I'm not. God, you're great, and I am small. God, you're mighty, and I am weak. God, you're holy, and I am sinful. God, you're loving, and I'm undeserving. God, you're gracious. Here am I. It's a posture of humility. You see, if we walk in pride, remember what pride is? It's not thinking little of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves little. It's seeing God clearly for who he is and seeing ourselves in light of that. When we walk in pride, we are unable to walk in the fear of the Lord because pride inherently thinks we are great. Are we valuable? Yes, we're valuable to the heart of God. Are we loved? Absolutely. But are we great? No, we are not great. He is great. Amen. He is great. 
and it means a posture of humility. If we are going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it means taking on a posture of humility, which naturally means this, church family. If we're going to take on and work out our salvation in a posture of humility and fear and trembling, it means you and I have to be willing to be convicted and corrected. It's real good. We all love to amen humility. Absolutely. Amen that humility, except when that humility demands that we actually be confronted with something we're doing that's off. It means we have to be corrected. It means that as we work at our salvation in fear and trembling, it's not just something we do individually, but as we do it individually, we do it together. We work it out collectively as a congregation in fear and trembling. And the context here for the church in Philippi, for them to work out their salvation in fear and trembling, means they are to take God seriously who he is. The, the, the God who humbled himself, who, who did not count his deity as a thing to be grasped, who came in the form of a servant, who took on flesh, who was obedient to the point of death, to take that Christ seriously and to live out the exhortation to be a gospel-driven church, a church that is locked and set on one mission and one mission only, to see the gospel of Christ move forward in this world to, to lost men and women, boys and girls who haven't heard it, to see the church of God grow into maturity who is the head, and to do it all as a unified body, which can only happen through humility walking with the Spirit. He says, church in Philippi, you take seriously this. This is the context, church family, that if you and I are to work out our salvation and all fear and trembling, that we are to take seriously who Christ is. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling means we take Jesus seriously. And we start by taking seriously who he is, what he's done, and what he says. We accept what he says, when he says it, how he says it, why he says it, where he says it, which is why he says, if you love me, you will what? You will obey my commands. Family, to work out our salvation means we recognize who God is. We recognize what he has done, what he has given us in salvation and reconciling us to himself. We see that we are citizens of heaven with rights and responsibilities. And we take him seriously. Amen. And that's not a very eloquent way for me to put it, but that is exactly what it means. It means we take him seriously on the things he commands that we really like and are our personal soapboxes. means we take him seriously on the things that we constantly like to ignore so that we can have things we want. This is what it means. But less church family, we come to a point and we go, wow, this is starting to really sound kind of like, wow, are we, are we bordering? Like, where does that stop? Are we trying to go after some kind of a Puritan legalism where we just, well, taking him seriously means no this, 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 no. But look at, look at the protection here. We're to work out our salvation, not out of a desire to have some legalistic code of things to honor, but we're to do so as objects of his love. Who is this directed to? So then my beloved Church family, our obedience, our working out our salvation is not inside of some, here's the list, keep the list. It's in the context of being in a loving, real, agape relationship with God. 
where our value and worth is not determined by performance. So our value and worth is not driving our performance. Instead, what is driving our hunger and our longing to work out our salvation and fear and trembling is the fact that we are sons and daughters loved by God and we only love because he first loved us. Oh, it moves away from legalism and moves to what it should be, which is love. And let's be clear again in this room, church family, because some of us in this room today, we are walking in a very healthy, well place with the Lord. And some of us in this room today, we are not walking in a healthy, good place with the Lord. And it's easy when we're in this spot to hear the doubts and the lies in it say, you're not worth it to Christ because you're not measuring up. Hear me, church family. None of us have measured up. Our value is not on measuring up. If you're struggling as a believer today, your value in Christ is not in question. Whether or not he's pleased with the walk of your life, that's between you and him. He may be pleased, he may not be pleased, but value is not why, because we are objects of his love. We're not just objects of his love in carrying, out, carrying this out, but we are called to carry it out regardless of the audience, church family. That's what Paul says, I pointed out earlier. He says, whether you've always obeyed in my presence, but now much more in my absence. See, the Philippian church was overall an obedient church, but even as an obedient church, it didn't mean there wasn't room to walk even more faithfully. And Paul calls them to walk faithfully, whether he's there or not. I love this quote I found this week. Too many Christians obey God only because of the pressure on the outside. Church family, as a college pastor, my greatest concern for the students that I ministered to, who were believers, my greatest concern was that their faith and obedience walking with Christ was anchored in their community of friends more than their Savior. Which means when this community of friends is no longer present, my ability to walk in faithfulness and obedience and hunger with Christ, all of a sudden it goes away because it was never found and rooted in Christ. It was found and rooted in who was around me. In church family, we can do that with community of people who surround us, whether that's a small group or friends. We can do that with whether or not we have a great leader pouring into us, feeding us. We can tether our obedience to all sorts of audiences. But understand, the call to work out our salvation in fear and trembling is to be done regardless of what audience is there or not. Now, if you go, man, this is heavy. It is heavy. But listen to the really great news here. Look back at 13 with me. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the command. Now, here's why it's possible. For it is God who is at work in you. Literally, God is in the place of emphasis in the sentence in the Greek, meaning it's not just anybody who's at work in you, church family. It's God. God is the one at work, the one who we are to fear, the one who we bow before in fear and trembling and humility, the one whom we are called to work out his salvation in our lives. He's the one who's actually the one working in our lives. It's not the pastor at work in our lives. It's not the Sunday school teacher at work in our lives. It's not the person who really, really, really likes Jesus. If you and I are in Christ, it is God who is at work in our lives. And that word at work in our lives, it's literally a participle that creates kind of, uh, if you will, a name for God. God, the one who is working. The one who is bringing all of the ability and effect and power 
the one who is working. And by the way, it's a present tense participle. But you know what that means? The one who is always at every single moment without ever, ever faltering working. There is never a moment, church family, if you and I are in Christ, where God is not actively bringing the full weight of his power and his character working in our lives. Why? Because the moment you and I came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God himself, and I'll remind you, the Holy Spirit, not in it, he, he is God, the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity came, and it says that he indwells us. The whole fullness of the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence, living in you and I's heart, the moment of salvation. Not only that, but it says in Ephesians 1, he seals us. That sealing both sets us apart as one who belongs to God, but it's also a permanent seal that can never be pulled off. You cannot lose the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who now is at work inside of us, who reminds us of truth according to Jesus, who convicts us of sin, who empowers us. For it is God, the one who is working in you. And look what he's working to do, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will. means that God is actively working to bring about his will in and through our lives. Not only that, that's one side of the word to will. The other side means God is actively at work transforming our desires inside of us so that our wills conform to his. So that the very will that drives us to make the choice of obedience, God is actively at work transforming that. He's at work to will, and he's the one working to, to work, to carry out. And it says, for his good pleasure, church family, understand this. The process of you and I following Jesus Christ, the highs, the lows, the moments we walk well, the moments we fall, the process of our sanctification, of God Almighty working out his salvation in our life, of us being called to walk, to work out with fear and trembling, it pleases God to do it. Now, maybe that's not astounding, but understand this. It means God is never annoyed having to put up with us because God never feels like he has to put up with us. It is his will and his work for his own good pleasure and delight. God delights to work out his salvation in our lives. It delights God. It delights him to correct us when we're off. It delights him to instruct us when we're off or on. It delights him to bring conviction. It delights him to bring encouragement. It delights him to bring the actual power to enable us to follow him. It delights him. It delights him. Can we just ask this, church? When's the last time you were seeking to, to work out your salvation? You're, you're facing a temptation. It's, it's really, it's the enemy shooting his missiles at you. You're seeking the Lord in prayer, and this mindset comes, you know, I just feel like I'm just, uh, you know, the Lord's got to just be annoyed with me. I'd be annoyed with me. Good news, church family. God's not annoyed with you. He's delighting to work out his salvation in and through you. 
for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure, he is at work to will and to work his salvation. Christian, this is what this means, then, that, that in the call to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we understand we do so as objects of his love. We understand that we do so regardless of audience, but the only way we're going to do so is if we are absolutely in every way confident that his perfect power and presence is within us to enable us to do it. To enable us. I mean, just listen to this list. Like, this is just, listen to what, we're going to be confident we've got to know, okay? We've got to know. We've got to know what's true. Listen to just what, the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within you has brought salvation. Listen to just this. This is by no means a whole list. Just listen. It means you and I have been given the mind of Christ. It means the Holy Spirit pours out the love of Jesus in our hearts. It means we've been completely immersed into Jesus' death and completely united in his life. It means there's no condemnation because we've been set free from the law of death. It means that we are adopted as a child. It means we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. We've been given the right to be children of God. We've been adopted, which can never be undone. We've been united with the Lord and Spirit. We've been crucified with him. It means we are chosen, royal, holy, and a special possession. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And all of this truth is the basis for why we are called to put off the old self and put on the new. Amen. Amen. Because he is the one working. If we're be confident of his work, we've got to know what it, what it is. It also means we can be confident to expect not only all this truth is true, but if all this truth is true, we can confidently expect his empowering to live it out. It says in 2 Peter 1 that we've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. It says in Galatians 5 that the Holy Spirit produces his fruit within us. It says in the small little book of Jude, frequently ignored right at the end, now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling, to make us stand in his presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Church family, being confident of what he's doing within us means we are confident that he actually gives us the power to live out his work, his salvation. And if we're going to be confident of that, we need to be confident that he is going to carry out his work in our lives, church family. What is his work? It's Romans 8, 28, to conform us to the image of Christ, to take all things in our life, good, bad, and ugly, to conform us to the image of Christ, which means Hebrews 13, 3 through 13, he delights to discipline those whom he loves, discipline being both correction and instruction. It means that Romans 7, he will allow us to try to live on the basis of our own little laws, and we will see and expose the tension in our heart, and, and he will expose where we are weak. He will expose where we are self-reliant. It means 2 Corinthians chapter 12, his grace is sufficient and his power is perfected in weakness, which means he will allow us to come to our ends so that we will actually be dependent upon him. Because church family, you and I don't have any ability to work out the salvation in our lives but he has all the ability he lives within and we have the ability to walk in his strength and might. It's called walking in and by the Spirit. So let me just put this real simple. What this is telling us, if this is true, if we're going to be confident of his work within us, then it means we are able, church family, by the grace of God and the power of Spirit through the blood of the Jesus, we are able to work out our salvation to its logical God-glorifying end. It means God has set you and I and you and me free in every way to depend upon him, to follow him faithfully and obediently. He does not call us to impossible commands. 
Impossible by our ability, yes, but what did we look at a couple weeks ago in First Family Advent? Nothing is impossible with God, including the ability to be a follower of Christ, to be confronted with whatever is the greatest temptation in your life, to see that missile of the enemy come and pound you, and for you, by the power and grace of God, to say no. And not just to say no, to say yes to the path of Christ. Which means, if we're able, there is absolutely no excuse, brothers and sisters, that we can use to justify living in sin. I can't use the excuse, well, the temptation is just too great, Lord. If the temptation just wasn't so strong, false. Because the Lord doesn't allow us to be tempted by anything beyond what we're able to bear. And there's a way of escaping Christ Jesus. Well, Lord, I, I, just, I just didn't even know. Well, false, the Holy Spirit lives within. He's given us word without. We have no excuse for willingly, knowingly, and agreeingly going along with sin. All of a sudden, excuses are off the table. What it means is, according to James 1, when temptation comes, what happens is we choose to believe what that temptation says. We choose to believe the lie of that temptation and willingly give in. Now, understand the difference. If I'm not in Christ, I'm not just willingly giving in. I have no other option. I'm enslaved to it. But you and I have been freed, which means when we give in to temptation and sin, we willingly submit to it. Because we have chosen in that moment to take our eyes, to take the meditation of our heart, and to place it on the lie that that sin says rather than on the greatness and glory of who God is. Because in that moment, we have become proud and we have sought our own glory rather than in humility and fear and trembling, seeing the greatness and goodness and beauty and majesty of our God and working out our salvation with fear and trembling. See, church family, it is God's job to transform you and I, but it is our job to worship by trust and obeying. This passage doesn't say let go and let God as if we just move over to the driver's seat. Well, workout salvation just means I'm just going to be passive. No, we have an active role, but it doesn't mean the active role is, all right, Christian, I saved you. Now go off and work, and we'll see you again when, 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 on that day. It's neither one of those. It's God who saved us by his grace, who, who keeps us saved by his grace, who will finish the work by his grace, who is at work within us, and it is us in response to who he is and what he's done saying yes and we're in living it out. It is us taking Jesus seriously because Jesus takes himself seriously and he is seriously at work inside of us. So church family, let me just ask this. Are we really serious about Christ? The context here, as we come to this, the context specific to the passage in Philippians has to do with unity, humility, and having a, a, a single-minded focus as the mission of the church for the mission of God. Church family, are we serious about Jesus? Are we serious about Jesus to walk in unity through humility? Are we serious about Jesus to be unified on those things that Jesus says, thus saith me, do not move? Or do we entertain other truths that are false and contradict that? Are we serious about unity through humility and, and when it comes time? And again, we all love day minute, but are we okay to do it when it costs us our preference? Amen. 
Are we okay to take Jesus seriously when we go, I can't believe we sang six songs today. I only wanted to sing four songs today. (laughs) Guess what? The Bible doesn't say how many songs we should sing, so get over it. (laughs) Now, I'm being facetious. But what happens, church family? And again, I told you this. I am not a passive-aggressive preacher, so do not read into what I'm saying. I'm making up an example, not trying to secretly do something three months from now. But what does it mean when maybe a program, something we've done one way for a long time, that's not a matter of immovable right or wrong, eternal truth, it's just a way of doing something, what happens if we look at it prayerfully and we go, we need to stop doing it this way because if we're going to reach these people over here, we need to actually make changes to do this. I'm not saying you can't be disappointed when something you love changes, especially I think the longer you go. There's so many things that it's easy to be nostalgic for, and there is nothing wrong with nostalgia. But when nostalgia and my desire for the experience of it trumps my humility to have open hands for the glory of God and His truth, we have a problem. So how serious are we about working out our salvation? How serious are we about making disciples? Acts 1.8 says we will be his witnesses. Matthew 28 says go and make disciples. Titus chapter 2 says in the church, the older men, the older women pour into the younger men and younger women. And notice, older and younger, not old and young. Because with the exception of all the little babies in the room, everyone in here has someone younger you can pour into. How serious are we? How how much church family are we doing that? How often do we look and see the older pouring into the younger? How seriously are we working out God's salvation, which calls us to make disciples? How serious are we about working out God's salvation, which calls us to love the local church? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, not a wedding passage. It's a passage about the love in the church. How serious are we about working out His salvation, which calls us to not neglect the coming together and worshiping together, which means how serious are we about not being a church where the average church member attends less than two times a month? How serious are we about working out His salvation and doing away with all gossip, gossip, falsehood, and unkind speech? How serious are we about putting away gluttony? How serious are we about forgiving those who hurt us? Even when they don't repent, it doesn't mean we have to jump right back and trust them. That has to be worked out over repentance and reconciliation, but we can let go of our right to vengeance over them because vengeance is not ours, it is the Lord's. Do we forgive like Christ has forgiven us? Are we serious about laying aside language and coarse jesting? Goodness knows, I've heard many believers tell the most vile sexual jokes. Are we serious about fleeing all forms of sexual immorality, porn, hookup culture, justifying living together outside of marriage, watching things that are gratuitous with their, with their sex, with their nudity? How many Christians have I, wa- have I seen who watch the most graphic, filthy shows? How serious are we about using our time wisely, making most of the days 
How seriously do we take Jesus to work out our salvation with what he calls us to financially, to tithe faithfully in the church, to be a generous and compassionate giver? Or church family, the question is, how serious are we about holiness? Not legalism, but if we say, I have been saved by the grace and blood of Christ, how serious are we about working out what the blood of Christ was shed to give us? But here's the good news, church family. Whether we're serious or whether we're not serious, here's the great news. If we're serious, God's power is there to enable us to do it. If we're not serious, God really loves repentance and confession in his people. And he is quick to restore. And guess what? That same grace will empower those of us who maybe aren't to become those of us who really take God serious and to live it out. This is, this is the good news. Is it a heavy message? Yes, church family, we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but here is the reality. It is he who is the one working right now in every one of us in Christ to will and to work for his good pleasure that we would actually be able to live it out. And can you imagine, church family, for First Baptist Pflugerville to be that kind of Jesus-honoring, Jesus-walking, spirit-filled church body, both in these walls and outside of these walls, in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces, for God to do whatever he wants through open-handed sons and daughters? Amen. Questions in front of us, church family. The question will be, how will we respond? Father, we just come to you as we move into this time of invitation. And, and as I said, Lord, there's, there's uh, the lists I, I work through. There, there's so many more, Lord. How serious are we about laying down our worry and our fight for control? Well, that's the question that rings to me because you know how easily I fall into those places. God, we live in a culture that has watered down what Christianity is to where we just go, ah, Jesus loves, and by loves we mean Jesus just is okay with everything. And obviously, Lord, we know that's not true. But Jesus, you shed your blood to do something, to reconcile us to yourself. In fact, if we are in you, Lord, we will never have a clue, even a taste of what it cost to save us. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. That means you, you, your, your holiness is even beyond what we can fully comprehend. Father, that we would be a people whose hearts desire more than anything to know you, to love you, and to reflect you. So Holy Spirit, as we need to respond, be honored by our response. It's in Jesus' name I pray.